Hello, welcome to Elgin Movie Watchers podcast. I'm Chuck Slackman. I'm along with Steve Gould. Remember now, there's a new episode every Monday, and you should share, like, and subscribe. You can find Elgin Movie Watchers on Twitter at Elgin Movie, Instagram at Elgin Movie Watchers, and like us on Facebook at Elgin Movie Watchers podcast. How was that, Steve? Wow. Oh, yeah. Now you're talking. Well, I have a fondness for this interview because uh, the man you're going to hear is uh, John Amaro, who uh, I met at a very tender age back in the uh, mid to late 60s when uh, he was managing a Broadway movie theater. And I showed up and introduced myself because I was hired as an assistant. And over five decades later, we're still uh, very close friends, almost like a brother to my wife, Nancy, and I. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. And John Amaro is also the author of the book, American Ecstasy, My 30-Year Search for a Happy Ending, which is available on Amazon and where books are sold. And now here's John Amaro. I guess this is a, a very auspicious podcast today because we have John Amaro with us. All of us here are so interrelated, it's absolutely amazing. Never mind the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, we've got three degrees <laughs> here. So we welcome John, and I think maybe he should tell a little about himself before we jump in. So why don't you give us a little pricey, as it were? Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I have been a movie buff uh, all my life. I'm from uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Uh, originally, but I came to the big city in 1958, and it was a wonderland coming from a town that had one movie theater called the North Shore, and you can imagine uh, when my brother took me to Times Square for the first time, and all the movie palaces were still uh, in operation at that time, and so I loved theater architecture, and uh, so I would go to a theater. I didn't care what the film was. Mm -hmm. I would go to a theater to see the outrageous architecture of the Capitol and the Paramount, of course, and the wonderful, wonderful Roxy was still in existence, had not been torn down until 1962 or something, yeah. I think. And there was a wonderful cartoon I'll never forget in the New Yorker magazine where it's a mother and a little child standing in the rotunda of the Roxy, and the little girl is saying, Mommy, is this where God lives? <laughs> and I never forgot it, but it was truly uh, an awesome theater. And um, I moved to the village, so have lived downtown for the last 50 or 60 years. Mm -hmm. After I got my fill of all the mainstream Hollywood films that I always wanted to see, I started looking for a harder to find product. And uh, I had also gotten my fill of giant 3,000 seat theaters. That's when I discovered uh, theaters that were showing. I never realized I when I arrived here in the city that there are places that you could see old films mm -hmm. and see good films because I really didn't care. I just wanted to see everything that was new, everything that was big, and uh, I had certain favorite actors. But then after I saw a couple of smaller films, films like 
The 400 Blows. That film left a lasting impression on me. I didn't know who Francois Truffaut even was, but the film moved me, and I think I related to it to a certain extent. And that was kind of the beginning. I was trying to think of some of the earliest black and white small films. And there was an outfit called, I think, Cinema 16. And that's where I saw it. Somebody told me to go, and I did. And that kind of began my search for foreign films, certainly, because in my hometown, they never played a foreign film. But I did, I was told that the Apollo on 42nd Street uh, was showing a lot of the English comedies and the Ealing comedies, particularly The Man in the White Suit and what have you with Alec Guinness. And so I started to search out these uh, theaters and it was great because I didn't feel unlike going to the Capitol or the Paramount or the Roxy. That was a big deal and I really felt I had to dress up, imagine. Whereas going to the smaller theaters that weren't necessarily uh, particularly beautiful or in great shape, but I realized I was just going to see the movie. I really didn't care what the theater looked like. So that was a good part of my uh, education. And of course, my good friend, Steve Gould, probably introduced me to the Elgin and told me that he and his partner, Chuck, were going to start booking the theater and that I should stop by. And uh, I was in better shape then. So I would uh, ride my bike uh, up and uh, chain it up. I've been racking my brain to try to think of the first film mm. I saw at the Elgin, well, you but, kept, but you guys are going to have to help me there. Well, I think you kept rhapsodizing about uh, being able to see one of your favorite filmmakers' films there, and they were uh, shown at the proper speed, uh, D.W. Griffith's films. Yes, yes, certainly. I would have to say that Birth of a Nation I saw at the Elgin, and that was a revelation because I had seen bits and pieces of it, but I had never seen the whole film. It's not something they would be showing on Broadway, that's for sure. I was impressed by the fact that you two gentlemen seemed to really care about the films that you booked and encouraging people to see them and to have that experience. So it was always a delight. But I was also at the same time frustrated because of the lack of funds that I would say to myself, I wonder what's playing at the Elgin uh, tonight. And if I couldn't find out, you know, because there weren't big ads in the papers or, right. you know, and this was, yeah. you know, some year, years ago, that was frustrating because I'd probably go to whatever theater did take an ad, you know. So it's hard for me without some help from you guys to remember which films I saw there because... Well, I, I think also uh, one of the Griffiths, because... It, I think you told me when we started talking that you had seen Orphans of the Storm yeah. at the Elgin. Tell us about what happened with Lillian Gish. Well, I started collecting souvenir movie programs purely by chance. I And I remember, well, I walked in to see Guys and Dolls, and I was so naive that a gentleman handed me a program and said... Uh, here you go, sir. And I said, thank you. And I took the program and continued to walk. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, that's 50 cents. 
And I said, okay, I was kind of embarrassed, but uh, that was the beginning. And I found out that there were other people who collected programs, but they collected old programs. So with a good friend, we started uh, collecting. And eventually I bought Birth of a Nation, which was very scarce and valuable, and Orphans of the Storm. Then, for some strange reason, my brother and I decided to invest in a Broadway show which we had never done in our lives. And I knew it would be a waste of money, but you could buy a share for like $1,000 or something. And what uh, kind of uh, took me uh, by surprise was they said the Theater Guild was backing it, and some of the stars of the show were going to be there, including Lillian Gish. Mm And I think it's my brother, Lem, who said, don't you have two of her programs? So it must have been Orphans of the Storm yeah. and... Broken Blossoms. B- Broken Blo- Blossoms. They were two that Lillian yeah. was in. Yeah. And so I said, gee, I wonder if we go and invest our money, if I should take these two programs with me and get... Lillian Gish to sign them. That would really be cool. I mean, they're valuable now, but imagine, you know. So I did. And it was hard. I couldn't get anywhere near her. Mm-hmm. We were sitting at a big library table. But after people started to thin out and they were trying to actually get us out of the room, I sided up next to her. She was still sitting there. And I said, Miss Gish, I have something I think you might like to see. And I quickly took out the two programs and she opened them up and she was very impressed. And she said, you know, my stars, how lovely, blah, blah, blah. And then she started looking at the pages of the pictures and she said, oh, she said, Mr. Griffith loaned that man $10 and he never paid him back. <laughs> and I could see that the uh, directors of the of the show just wanted to get her out of there and me out of there too. And But she went through every single page and you know, kind of telling a story about it. And finally, I said, could I ask you to sign them for me? And she said, of course. And so when she was signing, I said, you know, these are very valuable. And as she's signing, she looked up at me and smiled and said, and even more so now. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I always uh, liked her for that. I have fond memories, particularly of those two films. They were like the jewel in the crown in my collection. And when I finally sold the collection of like 150 programs or so many, many years later, people always wanted to cherry pick. And those were two, along with Citizen Kane, which I had, and some other classics, Casablanca and what have you. But I said, no, 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 you buy the whole collection. You know, you've got to take the S with the S because otherwise they would have just chosen those, you know, classic films. So that was great, great experience. I think that we also have our relationship of many years when we started working together, when you were managing what started out as a newsreel theater on Broadway and then uh, going first run. Well, I think that's where we met at the Translux uh, Newsreel Theater at the corner of 49th and uh, Broadway, a one-hour show. It was a fun job because the show changed every Tuesday and Friday, I think, and we changed the show around 4 or 5 in the afternoon. So you could see the last old show and the first new show for the price of 60 cents, I think, or what have you. Uh, And it was the newsreel, uh, a cartoon, a travelogue. And the Newsreel Digest was fun because we would take the digest from 20th Century Fox, Universal, MGM, and Paramount and edit them together. And whichever studio gave you the longest 
take on what was going on. Uh, we would edit um, into what we called the Translux News Digest, and but it never ran with the whole thing more than 10 or 15 minutes, probably. And we filled the rest up with travel logs. So it was exciting. Um, and we constantly had to change the front of the theater, of course, and make up 8 by 10 stills for the boards in the front. And then a wonderful man on Broadway had a print shop, and his name was Mayachinsky. And he would do very quickly all of the signage that we needed for the news events. So, you know, bomb explodes in California, uh, Brits, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he was very much almost a Damon Runyon character. Yeah, he was. He wore yeah. a black cravat with his white shirt. Yeah. And it was very much like Edwin in mannerisms. Right, yeah. yeah. And he went back to the 30s. He had a wonderful blow-up of Gene Harlow in his studio, which was uh, just down the street from the theater, really. Yeah. So that was exciting. And I met Steve there because, well, I guess, did you come over to replace us or, or to know. shape us up? Because oh, the home office was. thought that I we were I just needed too a job, fun. so. so. Yeah. How, how big was that theater? That was about 500 seats. Yeah, yeah. and it would, there I was mean, no uh, balcony, but it was it was nice. It was just a perfect size theater. And we had a turnstile. There were no uh, tickets. Mm -hmm. I think it opened originally in, at where Jack Dempsey's was right. on Broadway. Right, and they moved it over. And then, uh, yeah. But, but it it's a, a classic for those that follow the New Yorker cartoons. Uh, oh. There's a uh, classic. John has it. a copy of the cartoon. Right. But it's a cartoon of this big, uh, bejeweled, befurred couple standing on their terrace and another very, very fashionable couple going by. And the caption says, oh, why don't you come with us? We're going to the Translux newsreel and hiss Roosevelt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've got the original of that, Yeah, which was hanging in the office of the theater for many, many years, and then I, somehow I ended up with it. And I think one of the things that Chuck and I tried to do with the Elgin was capture a little of that spirit, because we showed things like cartoons and short subjects at the Elgin, and mm -hmm. I think that the spirit of that I remember from the times with the Newsreel Theater there. Everybody really got into it. I mean, they were different in the 70s, and in the Elgin there were probably a lot of reasons were people getting into it and it had to do with rolling your own cigarettes too mm -hmm. so but it was a it was a good time refresh my memory when was that theater built and what was it called the, the elgin oh the elgin yeah. was originally built and it was called the elgin oh it was. Uh, okay yeah, yeah it was one of two theaters it was one uh, what was the other one that uh, was called? Roberto talked about it. I don't know. It was a sister theater. I think yeah. it was called the Chelsea or something. I don't was know. it was it built in the 30s? Yeah, and what happened was, no, actually it was built a little yeah. later. It was built uh, in 1941, I think. Oh, okay. But they followed a kind of art deco if you look at the outer design yeah, well now I, it's been changed I kinda, but, yeah, felt but it even uh, even on the inside when we had it uh, there were kind of like fluorescent lighting behind mm -hmm. cove I think it was molding. 42 yeah 42 yeah so I mean we tried especially with limited funding we tried our best to uh, keep the tenor of like if we were showing silent films we tried to show it in the speed at which it should be shown by yeah. having a step down motor on the projector if we were showing uh, we put in as big a screen as we could so that if we were showing a cinemascope you could really get yeah. for a small 600 street theater 
the majesty of a big cinemascope. Your so. projection was great, as I recall. Matter of fact, I would say it was probably the best in Manhattan of the revival theaters because you guys cared. I think, you know, was the big difference. You had a great attitude and, you know, you'd be in the lobby kibitzing with uh, people coming in and, you know, and that was great. It was kind of a friendly family. Not that's not the right word, but you know, you yeah. felt like, wow, you know, yeah. these guys really know what they're talking yeah. about, and uh, I'm sure they've seen all these films that you know that they're showing. Well, it was a transition from going from what had been a basic local theater. They were showing Spanish language films. So it was in that sense at that time a family theater. But when it transitioned into what we all knew as the Elgin. It still, in a sense, became a family theater. It was just more like the Manson family. (laughs) The Manson family, yeah. (laughs) People, we've we've talked about this. People, you know, related to the theater differently depending on what they came there for. But there were people who were really regular theater goers who really related to the theater as a special place and the people who worked there and related as family. And particularly when we talked about when we went to the 25-cent senior citizen policy, that really became quite a a lure for certain people to come there quite a lot with the changing of the program. Yeah, a lot of the seniors had some of them, you know, very paycheck to paycheck folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for 25 cents, they'd come in and see a double bill. One old timer, you know, smoking a stogie. And uh, he said, I never thought I'd get used to it. But uh, now I'm kind of used to seeing that writing on the bottom of the film. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there was a lot of of changes. And and we tried to cater. I mean, there was some segmentation, but, you know, we'd have all night shows. And there were, you know, people, stoners that had come in to see that. Then we had to make sure we got the theater cleaned up. And then on Sunday morning, we'd have our special ballet or opera series, that kind of thing. I have to go back to D.W. Griffith. There was a time that I was ushering during Intolerance. I think we showed it three times a day. But I remember I started looking at the extras to see them, if I could identify them as they would come back later. And I remember reading at some time that Elmo Lincoln had seven different roles in Intolerance. I didn't know it was seven different roles, but I knew that Elmo Lincoln, I learned many, many years later, yeah, was in uh, that film. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And of course, I don't even know how easy it would be for people to to, to show Griffith stuff, particularly uh, you know, Birth of a Nation these days, because we had yeah. we had problems when we, well, showed, we showed it. it. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, people that did not want that shown. The people that came to protest the showing, and they wanted to you know stop it from being shown. And I had asked any of them if they had seen it. Yeah, of course they hadn't, but they heard about it, and I said, well, you know, understand we're showing this as film art right all kinds of uh, you know innovation things that impacted films for years after we're not necessarily endorsing the editorial policies yeah so again one of those knee-jerk kind of things you do without thinking and i said to him what what if i let you see this film and then you come talk to me afterwards and see if you still think it shouldn't be shown and that ended the protests Yeah. yeah i mean the same thing with well you know with Lenny Riefenstahl, too, people were, uh, it was like, it was like, it's okay if you showed Olympiad, but you couldn't show Triumph of the Will. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw both of those at the Elgin. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean. It's not that we didn't show For the first time. Well, thank God you did, though. I mean, things have progressed, and I had friends who are now gone, but who objected to Gone with the Wind in because of Hattie McDaniels. Right. And they said she should be cut out of the film. I said, that's insane. That's how it was in that That's how it was. And it's not that the studio or David O. Selznick is condoning slavery, but it would be even worse to cut her out of the film. It really would. Because she because, won an Academy Award. Yeah, and it would be a lie. I mean, you can't stick your head in the sand and say, you know, because this was bad, we're just going to uh, cut it out and ignore it and it'll go away. So it's important to show the way people thought I, and exactly. felt in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. You see offensive maids, particularly, and I love Warner Brothers films of the 40s, but they seem to have more offensive maids I found uh, who were given stupid things to do on camera. And I really said, that's so offensive. You could cut some of those out, but thank God they never did because that's the way it was in the films of the 40s that uh, you guys. Well, sometimes they showed. did. Uh... The studios did cut sections out of films. Well, when because, they played down south, yeah. And then they also had race movies. So yeah, that, oh, yeah. Uh, what they, at that time, would call... Uh, Colored theaters yeah, oh, yeah. had uh, had movies to mm-hmm. show, and I mean, one of those issues was uh, with Lena Horne. Oh, that's and, exactly you know, who I was. It's sad yeah. that the studio signed her to a seven-year contract, just like all the white performers. But every single film that she appeared in for MGM, her numbers, she was never involved in the plot line. And so that you could just snip out uh, her number down south, south of the Mason-Dixon line. And uh, I've talked to uh, people my age uh, who said, uh, no, she was not in Name the Film, because he never got to see her, because they just cut her out. Well, what we did is is getting the stuff that was edited out of King Kong. Yeah. Oh, right. And it back Back into the film. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. No. Yeah, there were many times people didn't understand that seeing a film that actually had been edited because that's the only way they had ever seen it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just heard a conversation lately. I think it was the 45th anniversary of Blazing Saddles being made. Wow. And the, the, the writers, and they were talking about it, and they got into the discussion of whether that film could be made today, could have been made today. Yeah. I, and, I, and they didn't think so. No, I, I agree. I agree because, you know, that was uh, maybe uh, the terminology. Uh, Cleavon Little standing up stage as, as the sheriff in town, and he, his line was because he wanted to show the town something, and he says, excuse me while I whip it out, you know? So, right. I mean, those kind of things I don't think would be able to play today considering the politically correct climate. If we had the Elgin, we'd probably play it. Well, yeah, yeah. and and that's a good example of a film that is of its time as much as an offensive made, you know, in in a Warner Brothers film of 1942. So that's why it's good to let people know that it was not always the way it is today, you know, and they certainly shouldn't be edited. We would uh, try to do the best we could to present the the films as, as 
as they were. I truly think you have to immerse yourself in a film, and the only way that you can immerse yourself is seeing it in the theater. Looking at it on a tablet or even on a large screen in your home is not the same ritual. No. Unfortunately, since there's really no theaters, well, not no theaters, but very, very few theaters in the U.S. that still follow a kind of uh, revival or repertory policy, the only way that it survives, I mean, if you want to see those type of films now, I just went down recently because I'm such a Fellini fan and they had a brand new 4K print of The White Cheek at Film Forum. And uh, But that's a subsidized, that's a, right. a, a 501c3 or else you go up to the Museum of Modern Art yeah. because they have a series sometimes of old or foreign films. But for a commercial venture like The Elgin Was or The Thalia or any of those, I truly think that those could not exist anymore. Right. Sad but true. Uh, yeah. so, you know, the days of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, hey, let's put on a movie or let's right. put on a show. I think those are uh, are over. Did you yeah. see where Netflix bought the Paris? Yeah. Yeah. Because they needed that yeah. venue, I guess. So, what? <laughs> have a theater to show a, yeah. a film yeah. in a theater. I saw an ad for the Paris and the, the theater I always liked uh, yeah. and have been going to since... I, used to be owned by Pathé, I think. 1958. Yeah. And uh, and at first I said, oh my God, they've twinned the theater because it was two films showing. And then, of course, I realized, I mean, everything is digital now. Yeah. And so they're now showing four films there, just alternating. You know, at 10 in the morning, you can see The Irishman. And then at uh, 12, you can see A Marriage Story. And uh, that is just so strange and alien yeah. to me. You know, yeah. I'm happy the theater's still open because it was probably the last single screen, yeah. one of the last single screens yeah, in, was. in New yeah. York City. Yeah, and it was very well maintained. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I saw yeah. a lot of Merchant Ivory product there. I think a man and a woman played there for like a year. They would get a little niche film. Uh-huh. And I, I used to think to myself, you know, that is perfect for the Paris. Well, it's like Translux had that with, I think, Lily, in that they opened it at the 50, their 52nd Street Theater in the 50s when it came out. And I think they got a year out of it. It was just one of those little films that eventually you'd have to go and see. And yeah, I think uh, there used to be one on uh, 58th Street, the Plaza, who uh, yeah. was similar the type Plaza. of venue that uh, yeah. the Paris had. But I remember your uh, brother Lem had taken me because he, I guess, wanted to see the film because it was, uh, I think, one of Liza Minnelli's first called Tell Me That You Love Me, Junie Moon. Oh, yeah. With a very, very young uh, Don Johnson. I mean, right. he looked like he, they just got him out of the cradle. Yeah. Uh, and it was at the Paris. Yeah, the uh, the Paris was a, a great venue for any of the films that, you know, wouldn't be going on, on a big track. Right, yeah. And I think one of the other things that's interesting in terms of the synchronicity of uh, the business is the fact that years later, Chuck and I were no longer running the Elgin, and you were still involved with filmmaking, but right. uh, would assist in managing one of the older Translux theaters that became a, a Crown Theater, the Gotham. What happened, but somebody who was a second generation, Zlatkin, Chuck's son, Ian, mm-hmm. was working with you there. So uh, yeah. now the yeah. two of you after... Some uh, many years are once again in the same room, so I don't know if you want to do any secret handshakes or anything. But, uh, <laughs> well, I uh, I enjoyed managing when I wasn't uh, producing a film. 
it always seemed that when I was between films, the theaters needed me. And I was fortunate, I really was, that they would ask me back while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. But I've made, written, produced, or directed like 30 features, but I always seem to return. I went to uh, Translux's State Theater in Boston, and that's where I was um, first exposed to the combat zone a rough neighborhood and that's where i saw probably one of my first exploitation films and that's when i said to myself i could make a film better than that famous last words <laughs> um, and i thought this is a way to get my foot in the door and learn how to make a uh, you know a 35 uh, feature and maybe you know not go totally broke and ironically the first film that I worked on with Mike Finlay was called Body of a Female and was 1963. Mm. And it opened at the State Theater in Boston. So uh, it was kind of uh, fun to see a real big marquee with real marquee letters, mm -hmm. uh, not plastic, but metal. I remember when the film opened at the Globe Theater on 43rd and uh, Times Square, I went to the theater, and again, they had spent even more money. They had made, probably Mayachinsky, uh, big cutout red letters, bold letters uh, that they had wired up saying, now in its sixth big week, body of a female. And uh, so I said to Mike Finlay, we had had a few brews uh, <laughs> at uh, one of the McMahons on the corner there, and I said, uh, well, we made it to Broadway. And, uh, and the theater, technically, the Globe was on Broadway. Broadway yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, great moments in cinema. But I loved working in all aspects of the movie business because I've also uh, been a distributor and an exhibitor and, uh, and a filmmaker. So I guess I really like the movies. And what were some of the movies when uh, Ian was working for you when you managed the Gotham? Oh, Ian wow. Ian remembers or you remember? Yeah, Ian would probably remember. There were so many. Well, and there we must did... have been some uh, well, ribald we... uh, oh, stories. Yeah. But uh, Fox seemed to take a lease on the theater for their private screenings. Yeah. And we showed a lot of Fox product. I remember that. And, and uh, you got to meet fun people. True Lies, uh, we did a lot of press screens of that. And yeah. because it made a lot of money, it stayed there a long time. And um, uh, Jamie Curtis uh, came in and, uh, you know, it was just fun. Well, of course, Platoon. How could I forget that with <laughs> Mr. Trump? But um, Yeah, what was that with... Uh with Trump. Well, we were doing press screenings at the Gotham of Platoon, and Oliver Stone was in the theater and, uh, you know, very anxious that everything go well because we were doing two shows, one at seven and one at ten, I guess, or some such thing. And we always lined everybody up outside, and sometimes there'd be a VIP list and sometimes they wouldn't. But I asked Mr. Stone if there was a VIP list for this one, and he said, absolutely not. Nobody gets in the theater until seven o'clock no exceptions and then he went downstairs to check the sound and so i informed my staff that no one was getting into the theater until seven o'clock so about that time a tall gentleman with strange blonde hair uh started knocking on the uh, glass door 
And I recognized him as Donald Trump because he owned a building uh, further up on Third Avenue. So it wasn't unusual to see him walking on Third Avenue. And he knocked on the door and I gestured to him that he should join the line. He said no uh, and then knocked louder. And I said, well, maybe he doesn't understand or maybe he just wants to ask me a question or some such thing. So I made the mistake of unlocking the door but keeping my foot right next to the door. Uh, and he said, I can go in. And I said, no, uh, the director has given me specific instructions uh, that everybody, no exceptions, has to join the line. And he said, no. He said, uh, I can go in. And I said, no, you can't. And then he said, do you know who I am? And I, of course I did. And I said, I don't care who you are. You have to join the line. And he started shoving uh, the door open, trying to get in. But I had my ushers uh, backing me up. And I was just about as big as he was. And at that point, unfortunately, uh, the director was uh, walked up the stairs, all of a stone, looked and saw it was him, and then much to my dismay said, oh, you can let him in. And I was so furious. Uh, and as they were walking down the stairs together, I said to my staff, there goes a class act, guys, a mm -hmm. class act. So that was my uh, Donald Trump experience at the uh, Gotham. And then you shipped him off to Washington, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. And gee, we never saw him again. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Came what, what do you yeah. think uh, you know, yeah. happened to him? Yeah. Well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, fun times at the Gotham. So I guess we want to thank you for uh, participating with us. On oh, our you're quite welcome. Podcast. I, about I enjoyed it. Elgin and Times I, and the seven. Yeah, and, you know, uh, I've been I. I was looking at some of your uh, documentary on the Elgin and uh, looking at some of the marquee uh, fair, especially the Warner's stuff from the 40s. And I said, oh, well, I saw that at the Elgin. Oh, well, I saw that at the Elgin. That's yeah. what I wanted to, to, to wrap up. We'd love to uh, ask you if you were running the Elgin now and had your choice of any films whatsoever, oh, wow. what would be a double bill that you would that'd be your well choice double bill yeah a choice double bill there was something about the theater to me that uh, seemed very welcoming to 40s films mm -hmm. particularly yeah. warner brothers and so it would probably be something like the maltese falcon and i mean i'd say casablanca but it's kind of a cliche but it would be that genre, or maybe even the Maltese Falcon with now Voyager or something, you oh, know, yeah. uh, just to mix it up a little. But because they are quintessential Warner's films yeah. of that of that period, and they just seem to me like they belonged at the Elgin. And it was, yeah. a, and they're black and white. And yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Well. Also, we'd like to get, if you can, to talk a little bit about your, your book. Ah, thank you. Well, I have been uh, working for the past five years on a uh, memoir, I guess we could call it, about my life uh, coming to New York and uh, wanting to get into the motion picture business. I have had so many strange opportunities while making these exploitation films. People don't really understand today what exploitation films are. They think, oh, it's porn. 
No. That was the guys with the black socks on, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, no. Porn, technically porn, came about uh, around 1972. I <laughs> wanted to make exploitation films because they were really just black and white, low, low-budget films that exploited serious subjects like prostitution or white slavery or what have you. Right. And they were shot on 35, so I figured that uh, my partner and I could get our foot in the door by making exploitation films because they'd play legit theaters, and you maybe could make a buck. Uh, so that's how it started, sadly. But it was so hard for you oh, uh, yeah. compared to nowadays. I mean, kids nowadays use their iPhones to make a movie. Oh, I know. To make it's, a movie, and yeah. here— yeah. You had a, uh, for the time, big bucks, yeah. you know, Araflex camera, 35 millimeter stock and everything. So. Yeah, but when I think the, the budget for Body of a Female, which was a uh, feature length film shot on 35, was like $6,000. <laughs> and I was working at ABC at the time, so it was our salaries that were going into the film. But the real trauma, it was kind of like sound coming to Hollywood in that, my brother and I had put all of our own money into a new softcore film called Bacchanal. And it was our first film uh, in color, or color sections anyway. And in the middle of it, literally, a friend called us and said, can you come up to the Tivoli Theater on 8th Avenue? Because there's something here you're really going to want to see. And so I said to my brother, we had a studio down at 24th Street at the time. I said, I think we better see this. J.J. is usually you know, on top of what's going on. And so we walked into the theater. We knew the owners. And I stood in horror at the back of the theater while an explicit sex scene was on the screen. And I was appalled because, of course, our film was not explicit mm. and all our own money was in it. And I could see the handwriting on the wall. And I was right. Uh, that that was the beginning of the hardcore uh, era of deep throat, we'll call it. And so we literally had to spend more money. And, you had to do reshoots? And do reshoots and inserts. And strangely enough, uh, we had heard of this guy, Herb Stryker, who would do this. And little did we know that the man doing our inserts, where you never saw his face, was in actuality Harry Reams yeah. uh, of deep throat fame. So... Uh, that was the beginning, and actually, it took a lot of the fun out of what you could get away with making exploitation films because New York City had a censor then, and you had to have a censor seal. So showing a girl swimming nude for a while or taking a shower was okay, but they told you exactly how far you could go. You know, and if she turned around too much and the towel wasn't in the right position. It had to go. So it was fun trying to think of ways that you could give the customers a little TNA without crossing the line. But we kind of fell into the money trap, I suppose. It was easy money uh, to make X-rated. But I got to work for uh, a lot of mobsters, which was certainly uh, fun. And uh, then I had to get myself out of that gracefully, but I went back to filmmaking and the budgets got bigger. And then, then finally, I, uh, I made a uh, two-hour uh, NBC special called Miracle Cure, Secrets of Alternative Healing. 
And so that was kind of my voyage from porn that, to prime time. That was time. the one you made with Olympia Dukakis? Yeah, and Olympia Dukakis was the uh, hostess. So the original title of my book was From Porn to Prime Time, My 30 Years Search for a Happy Ending. <laughs> but my publisher in London was afraid of the porn word, and he thought it would limit the sales of the book. So uh, we're calling it now American Ecstasy, spelled with an X, and it should be released in uh, April. That's so great. thank That's you good. for so, yeah. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> so we'll look forward to that, and uh, maybe uh, after the book comes out, you can come back and uh, oh, fill I, in some spaces for us. I'd love to. Yeah, right. I'd love to. Okay. Thanks well, again. So thanks thank a lot. you. Right. Fantastic. You're quite welcome. My pleasure. John Amaro will be back again in the near future to speak in more detail about his life and his book, American Ecstasy, My 30 Years Search for a Happy Ending, available on Amazon and wherever you get books. Also remember to uh, share, like, and subscribe. And next week's episode will be with another Elgin graduate, uh, John Bosley. Looking forward to uh, yeah. what John looking has Looking forward say. to that one. And look forward to uh, having you join us in our next episode at Movie Watchers Podcast. <laughs>